Hi, this is Mark, and I'm with my good friend, Faith Alvarez. Faith is a, I call her a civil rights attorney, and she literally is trying to bring justice to people that have been wrongfully arrested, false in prison, representing the families of people that have been killed by law enforcement officers. Faith, am I missing anything on that? Uh, I think that's an accurate summary. Um, I like to help, especially, I work a lot with mothers, and I work with children, uh, families who were victimized by uh, police misconduct. That sounds like a much better way than I described it. I like that. Victimized by police misconduct. So with so much stuff going on, we're filming this June 4th, 2020, and there has been six straight days of protests in Indianapolis, and there's a lot of outrage in the community. And so, Faith, I want to talk to you as a civil rights attorney that's someone that's arguing in front of the Seventh Circuit that's preparing a brief on civil rights issues for the Supreme Court as we are talking. What is your take on these protests? I think that the protests are the result of routine police misconduct that has been going um, unaccounted for. The vast majority of Hoosiers, if they can talk to the folks that I talk to, uh, see the things that I've seen, the videos, the photographs, uh, hear the recordings, hear the, the police radio, hear all the things that I have heard and seen the things that I have seen, they will agree that there is a serious problem with police misconduct in the state of Indiana. Uh, I can't take every case that uh, I get a call about, but just knowing that these things are going on consistently, the same thing over and over, I think the protests are completely understandable. Uh, it's, uh, I, I always say that it's the law of sowing and reaping or, you know, consequences, the result of cause and effect. Um, if, if an officer is protected from the consequences of his actions, which there's not a lot of consequences when a police officer, um, you know, brutalized, you see how uh, it took all these different groups to get criminal charges pressed against these uh, um, officers who killed um, Mr. Floyd, without the accountability, it's doing two things. Number one, it's enabling officers to continue with bad behavior. And number two, it's transferring the consequence to all of us. And the consequence is what you're seeing outside. You know, you're downtown with me. They've been protesting. I can see it out my window. Every day this week, there's been people marching in the streets. Um, protesting uh, the bad behavior. So even if, uh, even if the violence wasn't from some of the officers, the problem is we're all harvesting the same crop of violence and we need to sow some new seeds of accountability and justice. Absolutely. So Faith, talk to me about the legal principle that shields officers from police yeah. misconduct. So it's called qualified immunity, but give us the, you know, give us the dumbed down version of qualified immunity. Qualified immunity is the biggest obstacle to bringing a civil rights case and to holding a police officer accountable. It is black letter law. It is passed by, in the federal system, it's passed by Congress. In Indiana, it's passed by a general assembly. And it is black letter law of, of different circumstances where we're going to say, Yes, the Constitution was violated, but the person who did the violation, we're not going to hold them accountable because we think it's important um, to protect them for the importance of their job. 
So uh, police officers, uh, you'll oftentimes hear them say, uh, you know, I was in fear for my safety or in fear for my life because we're looking at police misconduct cases from the belief and from the perspective of the officer. So, you know, an officer is gonna be addressing a, an incident or a situation. It doesn't have to be true what, what the officer is facing, is what he believes is happening. And that's one of the, the biggest pitfalls in civil rights cases is that we're dealing with all of our cases from the perspective of the law enforcement officer. Um, so, you know, unless a law enforcement officer comes out and says, yeah, I went overboard or yeah, I was, I was wrong or I messed up or I was, I, I used more, more force than I actually needed to. Uh, it's a very uphill battle to gather evidence and to um, collect witness statements and cell phone video has become very key um, because you can, you can, um, you know, infer from seeing the circumstances around that no reasonable officer in that position would have, you know, felt the, the fear or the risk. Uh, but, but qualified immunity is, is a very difficult thing to overcome. And so, you know, the original purpose was to make sure officers didn't feel, you know, they could do their job effectively. Right. But it's, it seems like it's gotten so way overboard. And you see that the federal yeah. court striking things down. What are some of the more egregious examples that you've seen where... So by way of background, the qualified immunity, it came into existence because we're saying uh, an officer shouldn't be held. And in 1983 actions, which it's, uh, the, it's that's the, the chapter of the federal code, 1983, where all the civil rights cases are filed under. But what that is saying is that, okay. So in 1983, one of the items that we have to prove as a part of our claim is that the officer was acting under color of law which basically means that this officer is acting as a law enforcement officer, but he's not actually using proper authority. So he's abusing the authority that he has as a police officer by going uh, over the amount of force that they're able to go or arresting someone for uh, something other than probable cause of committing a crime. So what, what it is essentially is uh, abuse of authority is what we're, what we're claiming, uh, where qualified immunity says, um, if the officer is acting reasonably in a role of a police officer, uh, then we're going to not hold them accountable. And so one of the big issues that I consistently hear from my friends do civil rights, including yourself, is a lot of 1983 claims aren't able to survive a summary judgment. So number one, can you explain to anyone who's watching what summary judgment is? and then why these claims are having problems surviving yeah. summary judgment. Okay, well, I can, I can explain summary judgment, hopefully pretty simple for our non-attorney viewers. A summary judgment is the, usually it's, in our cases, it's the defense attorney, so it's the attorneys for the police officers. They will give the court a summary of the case, a summary of the law, and ask for a judgment in their favor that says no case. So essentially, that's that's their move. They say we win, our officers are immune from from li from liability, and you have no case. We have no trial, and we lose. And that happens all the time. Uh, the difficulty with qualified immunity is that there is, as I said, the black letter law qualified immunity. So that's where 
the legislature outlined certain things that we're going to immunize. But the bigger problem in federal cases is that it's judge-made law. So judges have the ability to look at what they've done in the past and say, this was reasonable, but now we think also this was reasonable. So they can, they'll be able to look at a past decision and say, we agree with what we said and we're actually gonna go a step farther. So qualified immunity has just really expanded because, well, number one, no two cases are ever the same. There's always a different fact scenario. For that reason, I understand why the judges would wanna take things on a case-by-case -case basis. The problem is there is so much uh, case law from times past to look at that you can really make an argument out of anything. And with the current, um, the current panels of judges that we're going up against, they're really not interested in officer accountability. Uh, you know, we, we know that there's two sides um, of, the, of the coin. So on one hand, we have an interest of uh, protecting these officers doing their jobs. And on the other hand, we have the interest of protecting citizens who uh, you know, shouldn't be brutalized or um, be subject to constitutional violations. That's why the Constitution exists, is to protect us from, from the government. So Faith, you're, you're telling me that the, the people defending the, the lawyers, defending the police officers, literally write a summary of the evidence, present it to the judge, and then the judge can decide if the case moves forward or not. Yes. And so it's completely divested from a jury. Yeah. And so if you, if, if the judge denies summary judgment, the judge says, no, this is going to keep going. They still get to go to jury trial and they still get to try to convince the jury that the officer acted reasonably. Am I correct about that? Not so fast. <laughs> I wish you were correct. Because oftentimes we will be able to defeat a summary judgment at the, at the trial court, but what the city will then do is they will appeal it because as we said, this is judge-made law. So you can take the decision to a higher court and ask that court to review it and see if they wanna change their mind. And sometimes they do. And sometimes new law is invented uh, where you, you know, when I, when I, uh, talk to people on the phone and I take calls uh, to, to see whether or not someone has a case, uh, we call that a consultation, I will ask a lot of questions and I will do a lot of research before taking a case. The problem is when the law will change, I, I can't predict that. So where I believed that I had a solid case um, and then you know they moved the hoop and I can't get to where I was aiming at. Um, it's, it's very frustrating, uh, but, but that's a part of why I'm going to the, or I'm gonna see if the Supreme Court will take one of my cases because it's, um, it's something that they review a lot. It sounds like so much, it's an uphill battle, I'm not gonna lie. It sounds like a lot of work. It sounds like a lot of time and energy and you can just have it taken away by a judge, which just seems, you know, with criminal defense, you know, at least, you have a shot of convincing a jury of your peers to move mm -hmm. forward like that. And then, you know, the idea of losing on summary judgment and appealing or vice versa, and then it's still not over. That just seems so insane. 
Yeah, one thing that I have to explain to people early on in their case is that these, it's difficult to predict when these cases will be resolved because some cases it's very clear what happened and I can, I can go straight to the city attorney and, and we can work something out outside of court. But sometimes these cases last five years, um, just fighting back and forth because there are a lot of legal fights. You know, the evidence doesn't always change. It's how you argue the evidence fits your position. And it's also looking at what new cases are coming out because everything can change just like that. Faith, I wanna ask you a question that's, what is the difference between prosecuting an officer and suing an officer? Well, there's actually a pretty big difference. Uh, Suing an officer is what I do. Uh, we file a lawsuit. Like I said, they're called 1983 cases, and that's where you're alleging a violation. Most often we allege a Fourth Amendment violation, which is a unlawful search and seizure, including seizure of the person. The, the, the uh, lawsuit will file a document called a complaint, and that's just an outline of the basic facts that happen and showing that you have a claim underneath the law. We'll file that with the court. Um, we collect our own evidence. Oftentimes we rely on the police investigation, but we'll also collect evidence from clients, collect evidence from witnesses. Uh, this is again where uh, cell phone videos are very key, uh, security videos, you know, anything that will prove what happened, happened. When it comes to prosecuting an officer, I can't do that. There's not a an average lawyer or a citizen who can who can prosecute an officer. That is the decision of the prosecuting attorney. Uh, what they rely on, and a lot of people say this is unfair, but the police investigation of their own officer doing the shooting, uh, which is the majority of the cases we're seeing right now in our city, the prosecutor has to look at the police investigation of their own officer and decide whether or not there is sufficient evidence and reliable information to determine that a crime has occurred. And, um, you know, it's, it's a lot different. A lot of times you'll hear grand juries be discussed. Now that's not required, but a grand jury, for those of you who don't know, it's kind of like a mock trial. Uh, you don't have to prove that a crime committed, but what you're doing is you're bringing in a group of special jurors and you're having uh, kind of a debate and you're seeing whether or not the evidence and information that you currently have would be sufficient to establish uh, whatever crime that you're thinking of charging the officer with. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, cases, I think we've seen on the news throughout the country where people will wait outside the courthouse to hear what the grand jury, after the grand jury convenes to hear what the prosecutor's conclusion is. Uh, because whether or not criminal charges are filed um, is very important to a lot of people who were affected. It's not required, by the way. Um, there's, you have no right to a criminal uh, prosecution. And so when you see situations like George Floyd, where they brought the criminal charges immediately, I mean, I say immediately, there's a lot of, there's a lot of anger that it wasn't brought sooner, but I so very rarely see officers prosecuted. I'm like, oh, that's pretty fast from a lawyer's yeah. perspective. The fact that he's being charged criminally, is that a slam dunk 1983 case? You know, it's hard to say. I, I take cases where the officer is prosecuted, and I also take cases where the officer is not prosecuted. 
And it's difficult to say how the evidence is gonna develop in either case. I think it's a stronger case if the officer is, is charged, particularly if he's ended up being convicted. Uh, but if, if, if there's a criminal charge against an officer, I mean, that's, it's almost, um, you know, it, it's almost evidence in itself that, yes, what happened here was unreasonable, which is the, the key term that we're always throwing around is whether or not something was objectively reasonable. And I think if, if the officer was committing a crime, that would be objectively unreasonable in the minds of most people. So one of the things that you mentioned was, you know, the importance of cell phone videos, the importance of surveillance videos. And, you know, you guys are relying on the police investigation, but you don't stop there. You know, right now, as we were filming this, I still don't believe the body cams from the four officers involved in the George Floyd murder have been released. Yeah. So absent bystanders taking cell phone video, I'm not sure this would, I don't think that we'd have officers charged at this point, very honestly. And so Indianapolis right now is, I think, the largest city without body cams. And for yeah. me, as a defense attorney, I'm frustrated by that because I always have people coming in here saying the officers did this, this, and this. And conveniently, the police report reads entirely different. And so I'm a very skeptical person by nature. How helpful would body cams be if they gave the footage to you immediately. Okay. Well, I'm going to actually go dig a little bit into my background for this. Um, I think you had mentioned earlier, I actually formerly was a prosecutor. Okay. And we had some cases in Indianapolis where, you know, IMP does not use body cams. I think it'd be great if they did. Uh, but when we'd get, when we would get um, cases that would come from the other cities inside of Marion County, uh, you know, for example, Lawrence police have body cams. And if you have a case, I don't know if you've had this in your practice, but if you have a case where someone's arrested by a Lawrence police officer, uh, they will send you the disc from the police department and you can see everything that happened. Uh, as, as a prosecutor, that's a great thing because we have so much discretion. Uh, and I'm saying kind of the general we, but a prosecutor has a lot of discretion over whether or not to pursue a case, modify charges, you know, what, what's the most appropriate thing to do with the case? And if you have body cameras, I mean, that's a very clear window into what actually, what, what, what actually went on. If it was something that happened when the police officer was there, you know, a lot of times they get called to situations that have already happened, uh, but for things that the police officer actually witnesses, that's very helpful as a prosecutor. Now, here on my end, doing police misconduct cases, I think that's pretty informational as to how the officer reacted. Um, you know, I, I would be of the opinion that I would like an officer to use force. If I'm getting mugged outside when I go home tonight, I would want to call 911 and have an officer come and use force to make the mugging stop. But I also wouldn't want to go get in my car tonight, drive home, get pulled over for speeding and have an officer bust out my window and shoot a chemical agent in my car. I think that would be excessive. By the way, also a case that I have. Um, but I think these cases tend to crop up when you have these kind of nonviolent interactions that just completely escalate out of control. No, and it's, it's interesting, you know, so many, I, I do a lot of drunk driving cases and Every year I get a case where someone's basically like, why are you pulling me over? I'm not getting out of my car. I haven't done anything wrong. 
And it's so funny to see the full gamut. We do have some officers. I spent a lot of time trying to get them out of the car. Ultimately, I had to get them out, drag them out another officer. You'll have other officers get out of the car. No, you want to get out of that car. And then they'll bash the window in. And it's, it's insane. And uh, you know, the law in Indiana, though, is officer asks you to get out of your vehicle. You have to get out of your vehicle. And, you know, absent some ch changes in law, they're protected by qualified immunity. Absent, you know, them hurting somebody or something like that. Um, yeah. One change that I would really like to see, officers have no legal duty to de-escalate a situation. Now, there's policy, police policy, general orders that give guidelines and recommendations of de-escalating situations. But what happens if an officer chooses not to de-escalate a situation? There's very little consequence for that. There's no, you know, I can't bring a case saying, well, uh, excessive force and failure to uh, do and make any attempt to de-escalate a situation. I think there should be a legal duty to at least make an attempt to de-escalate. It doesn't even have to be a, a big thing, but for a lot of people, particularly now, where you can see, you know, the whole city is going to be very uh, edgy in any interaction with the police. I can I can predict that um, pretty easily. But when you come up to a citizen who's already edgy and you start barking orders at them, of course they're going to be resistant. And I think that there should be some type of duty to de-escalate a situation before busting out their windows or, you know, grabbing them out of the car. Um, that's just my personal opinion. Again, that's not law. And there's a lot of policy debate over why that that's not going to happen. Faith, what, 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 from your perspective as civil rights attorney arguing these cases to federal courts, give me your definition of what you consider to be excessive force. Right. So force is, force can be anything. Force can be a taser. It can be a gun. It could be a baton. It could be a punch. It could be a slap. It could be uh, grabbing. It can even be handcuffs. Force is anything that's, you know, touching your body. Excessive force is when that goes too far to, to meet the needs of the current situation. So if you are giving someone a speeding ticket, you probably just want the cop to write you a ticket and send you on your way so you can pay your 200 bucks or whatever. Well, uh, excessive force is when that's really what should happen, but instead it, it spirals out of control. Uh, too much force is used in order to issue a simple traffic citation. Um, someone is, uh, you know, mouthing off. This is one that happens quite a bit. The Indiana Supreme Court has said that, that cursing even at police officers is considered political speech. It's protected. It's First Amendment territory. You cannot get arrested for political speech. But it doesn't mean uh, that it's not going to upset the officer. I mean, realistically, they're, they're human beings just like us. They could be having bad days. And uh, if you cuss me out, I'm probably not going to be really happy with you. But, but the problem happens when you, they're still held to this, this constitutional duty um, to not use too much force than necessary. So oftentimes, if you're, if you're getting mouthy with an officer, I hear all the time, They'll just squeeze the handcuffs really tight and people get marks and cuts. Um, not necessarily the best idea, but it's considered political speech. And that would be excessive force, in my opinion, because, because there's no real need if you're arresting someone 
who's maybe not being violent, they're just being mouthy. There's really no need to excessively tighten the handcuffs. Um, we saw a great trial a couple years back. Um, very interesting case. I dealt with this when I was working on the court side. Um, it went to trial. A lot of these cases don't even make it to trial. Um, and in short, it was a intoxicated person in the back of the car getting mouthy. Um, and the officer actually just punched him in the face to shut him up. Um, well, it was, the jury decided, yes, that was excessive force. Um, so that survived summary judgment. It survived. And that got to the jury and the jury said, no, you can't be punching people. They said, they said, yeah, that's, that's too much force than was necessary. They just arrested him, put him in the back of the cruiser. And all they needed to do was transfer him to jail. He wasn't trying to get out of the vehicle. You know, he wasn't trying to escape the handcuffs. He was just being real obnoxious. Um, so as a person, I get it. Um, but, but you cannot use your cloak of authority to be punching people in the face. No, no, you cannot. You can't <laughs> do that. Talk, tell me about false arrest. What's your thought process false on arrest. that? Yeah, false arrest, it's always, a uh, you know, that's one where you and I can work together, right? Because they always go hand in hand with the criminal charge. Uh, false arrest is where, uh, I see them most often in like disorderly conduct, resisting arrest is the only charge. Um, just the, they're usually smaller misdemeanors. Uh, intimidation is one where it always tends to crop up. But what happens is um, it, there's no probable cause. And to explain what probable cause is, um, there's no reliable evidence or information that gives an officer cause to believe that a crime probably occurred. That's, that's, I'm sure you get, have a better definition of probable cause than me, but uh, we just, well, we just need an officer to think, have enough reliable information that a crime probably occurred. Doesn't have to prove it, you know, that's not the, um, it's not the, the final conviction, but we have, um, we often see personal motives coming in here. So, um, you know, if I'm, uh, give you an example, so if I'm, if I go outside and uh, public place and I happen to be speaking Spanish and it really bothers an officer, he can't arrest me for disorderly conduct, right? Maybe he will because it's just really bothering him. Um, but he decides to arrest me for disorderly because he tells me to stop talking and I don't. Or maybe uh, I have some personal beef with someone and they happen to be a law enforcement officer. We see each other somewhere and get into it and I get arrested for uh, resisting arrest or disorderly conduct, something like that. It, there's not a crime that occurred. It's just, we had this personal beef and we started arguing. Um, again, both of those are actual fact scenarios of cases that I have. So false arrest charges, um, or false arrest cases, they come with these criminal charges that you really have to beat in order to have a successful false arrest case. The so fine beat, Faith, you're talking about diversion, it's out. You're talking about the only thing that we'll accept is a not guilty. Give me the, what is your definition of beat? Okay, very clear. You need a dismissal or a not guilty. That's the only way you can have a false arrest case. 
Now, what if, what if you get, what if, what if, so what if your officer is really mad at you, starts beating the heck out of you, you defend yourself right then and there, you defend yourself against an officer and he says, ouch, it's a level six felony. So all of a sudden you have a battery and a public safety officer and you have resisting law enforcement, you hire an attorney and they're like, hey, let's get rid of this felony. You didn't hit the officer, but yeah, you resisted. So you plead guilty to the misdemeanor resisting law enforcement to get rid of the felony. Can you still move forward on a civil rights case? It depends. It's hard. You know, you're it, not the only one. It's, it's very I will cool. say, I will say that, yeah, I will say that I probably wouldn't take the case. I have, uh, there's so much need. Um, and this is another thing I think you had said before is that it, these cases are very difficult and it's a kind of an uphill battle for a lot of them. You know, we're dealing with community issues. Um, uh, but, but the thing is, there's so many calls that I get. I, I don't have enough manpower to take every case. So I can't take cases that I think that I'm not sure I can win when I'm screening these cases. And I, you know, I don't, uh, we do things on contingency and we don't earn any money as lawyers unless, unless we win. Um, and so I cannot in good conscience for my law firm, for my other clients, I cannot take a case that I'm not certain that I could uh, prevail or, or, you know, prove. So when we have a false arrest case and there is a plea agreement or a conviction, a diversion even, those first time offender things, they, they look really attractive, but in the language of the diversion, you're agreeing that, at least in Marion County, you're agreeing that the officer had probable cause to arrest you, um, but you are not agreeing to plead guilty. That's the, that's the nuts and bolts of the diversion, from my understanding. I know different counties do it different ways. But you're, again, admitting that there was probable cause for an arrest. So how hard is it for me to, to combat that, where you've actually put your signature saying, yes, the officer had probable cause to arrest me, but it was a false arrest without probable cause. It just doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't work, um, has been my experience. Unless you have some really phenomenal evidence um, but I just, I don't think a, a criminal defense attorney should, could advise their client if they, if they genuinely believed it was a false arrest. I, I think it would be difficult to advise your client to even take that. Yeah. And, you know, just from my perspective, people, you know, a lot of my clients, you know, live their entire life. They're in their thirties, late twenties, early forties, live the law abiding life and they get arrested and the, they just want to make sure this gets behind them as soon as possible. And so, you know, so many times where people are like, I want to fight this. I want to sue. I want to do X, Y, and Z. Okay, let's, we have to go forward. We have to keep pushing forward for a trial. And, you know, we have to either get a not guilty or have them agree to a no strings attached dismissal. A lot of times people just get, you know, cold feet about this. And, you know, I've had cases, you and I've worked together on cases where a person wanted to try to sue the police. And we explained, you know, even if we get the not guilty, it's going to be between five, maybe five years before we're able to get some sort of trial on the um, civil rights claim. And you can see the wind go out of their sails. It's just like, and it's hard. It's, it's very hard because nobody wants criminal conviction. Nobody wants a felony. 
but people also want their day in court and sometimes you can't get everything you want and it's hard. It's really hard. Um, and again, this goes going back to the protests that we're seeing now is there's just not really good avenues to, to make any consequences for these violations. Uh, we, we need more avenues. We need better avenues. I saw the other day that there is a proposed legislation in, um, in Congress right now to either repeal or reform qualified immunity. And I think that would be great because that is, that is the top hurdle that I have to cross. You know, there's, there are countless pitfalls in civil rights cases, but qualified immunity is just really the kicker that, that, that knocks so many cases out. Um, if there were more avenues to getting uh, some type of relief or some type of accountability and justice, for these cases, I think that you would see, you wouldn't be seeing the protests that we're seeing now. Um, and you know, I understand, I understand both sides of it and that's what makes it, it confusing. I think, you know, we just really are gonna have to find some type of a solution. I don't know what that is, um, but there has to be accountability, that's all I can say. It's very frustrating because, you know, even when I know officers, you know, 99% of the officers are just fine. Well, yeah. you're seeing the same 1% do things. And then uh, I don't know how it is when you're doing trials, but you know, the judges make it next to impossible for me to present prior acts of wrongdoing of an officer in the criminal cases. So, you know, hey judge, this is the third time somebody said this officer has gone above and beyond, broken a trunk or a glove compartment. Well, Mark, you can't use past behavior to prove this time. So what else you got? So even when I do criminal trials, I have judges are blocking evidence. And there's rules of evidence, there's rules that have to play, but it sometimes seems like the evidence is stacked so hard against the individual person. Yeah, we get that in sometimes as evidence of habit. I know, we're trying, right? Like, yeah. that's all yeah. the time, come on. Yeah, so it, yes, it's very difficult to get in the officer's uh, past indiscretions or past disciplinary actions unless uh, it is right on point with what you're doing. So we're saying the exact same thing has been occurring consistently. Or uh, oftentimes, you know, I had one case where we pulled the, the officer's history, which we're able to subpoena that. Um, it was, I'm not kidding, 44 pages, and they were, uh, they included dishonesty, right? So we have officers lying on, police reports, uh, lying to superiors, and that kind of evidence is critical because we're, as you know, we're, we're a lot easier to get in information about a person's credibility. Um, so if we have evidence that these officers are uh, untrustworthy, then that really helps us to combat the testimony that they're giving about what they say happened. Well, hey, Faith, I appreciate you taking this time to chat with me. Um, how can someone reach you if they want to reach out to you and talk to you about a potential case or just to follow up with you? Yeah, well, um, we are doing virtual visits, so uh, you can reach out to me by email, falvarez at nleelaw.com, and also phone always works, 317-631-5151. Uh, I have a Facebook page. People reach out to me on that all the time. Uh, Attorney Alvarez um, is my Facebook handle. and. Uh, 
yeah, I, I talk to people all day. So I don't think anyone told me when I was going to become a lawyer, I'd be on the phone six, seven hours a day. Like nobody explained that to me, but Hey, Faye, thanks so much. You have a great day. On Zoom. <laughs> hey, don't, 